welcome to Agile Clips, where we break down Agile into manageable pieces. In this episode, we speak with Dr. David A. Bishop about the role of Agile methods in the development of complex systems comprising hardware, firmware, and software. Often, these systems are developed using a hybrid methodology, with some teams using Agile and others using waterfall techniques. Hi, everyone. Today, we're fortunate to have a guest speaker, uh, David Bishop. And I will ask David right now to introduce himself. Hi, well, my name is David Bishop, uh, and uh, I am a uh, Agile consultant uh, and business researcher. I'm a, a researcher with the Center of Engaged Business Research at Georgia State University here in Atlanta. I've also been in the technology business for about 25 years. I've worked for a variety of companies. Uh, in the technology space in a variety of different verticals, including everything from web to e-commerce to IoT to blockchain to uh, IVRs and pretty much everything in between, <laughs> a little bit of everything. <laughs> Great. So uh, prior to uh, starting the recording, we had uh, spoken about some topics that we wanted to cover. And I know the first one was about how can Agile be adopted to embedded systems development. So maybe we should start with your definition and examples of embedded systems. Sure. Well, you know, the interesting thing about uh, technology development today is that it's not just about software anymore. It's about devices. You know, 15, 20 years ago, all the innovation was mostly happening in the software space with e-commerce and things like that. But today, it's all about smart devices, uh, whether it's your smartphone or whether it's uh, smart meters or smart cars or uh, any type of uh, device. And uh, that's where all the innovation is happening today. That's where all the cool stuff is going on, if you will. And those are essentially embedded systems. And what an embedded system is, is uh, a product that has hardware, firmware, and software combined. Uh, so this hardware, firmware, and software is often developed on separate tracks by separate teams, but at some point it has to be tested and released as one cohesive product. And that's, uh, that's challenging to do with Agile. Uh, many companies who develop embedded systems-based products have the most difficult time uh, adopting Agile. Yeah, so actually I can think of a prime example, but if I mention it by name, she will answer back and say she didn't understand what I was asking. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, uh, Santosh, you were going to say something? One of the things that you just mentioned earlier is that if there are three different tracks being uh, developed, where do you see the maximum contention or uh, integration? Or you know, where, where are the where do you see the challenges? Well, the challenges are often uh, trying to figure out uh, how to adopt Agile for all the different tracks. Many times, when an organization like that takes on an Agile transformation initiative, they try to. Uh, have all these different development tracks, all these different teams uh, assimilate Agile the same way. Mm. Uh, and that really doesn't go very well. Our, our study, case studies show that uh, you have to adapt to Agile differently based on the different tracks. The other challenge is testing, right? So, uh, it, it's, so all, all, these different, all these different tracks are, are essentially three different products and they're tested individually and they're tested by separate teams but at some point they have to be tested as a system 
And sometimes there's conflicts with, okay, this team is ready and this team is not, or, or we don't have the correct uh, hardware, or we don't have the correct rev of firmware. And all of these different tracks have interdependencies on each other. So that, that tap dance of coordinating uh, the availability of all the different releases of all three tracks or components uh, and testing those together and making sure it all works right uh, and getting it released as one cohesive product is, is difficult in itself. Hmm. So I'm assuming you have maybe a, a way or, or recommendation by which uh, these embedded systems can actually adopt uh, Agile. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, over 10 years ago when I started getting into this, uh, trying to solve, uh, solve this Agile problem. I saw this problem firsthand with some of the companies I worked with. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was fairly, well, it's not easy for every company or most companies, but it was much easier for software-only companies and organizations to adopt Agile. But companies who were developing these kinds of products were having a very tough time. And I thought, I want to try and crack the code on that problem. And so I set about a 10-year research study on doing just that. And that's what uh, the book Metagility uh, and, and came out of, and also the, the research studies that uh, Metagility is based on. Hmm. And what it essentially uh, is, is uh, it's, a, it's a hybrid uh, form of Agile, where you have, uh, uh, for example, uh, you have uh, your, your software teams may have a pure adoption of Agile where they may have two-week sprints, they may have their daily stand-ups, they may do all the typical Agile things, but your firmware teams may move a little bit slower. They may have 30-day sprints. Uh, they may not have stand-ups every day. Uh, and then you have your hardware teams, which may move somewhat slower because the hardware doesn't change as often as the firmware, and the firmware doesn't change as often as the software right. in most cases. And so the hardware teams may have more of a closer to a stage gate type of uh, um, development process, but they also use rapid prototyping and other techniques to keep up with the other faster moving tracks as well. So they have their own brand of agility that's not the same, but they have ways of keeping up. And of course, there's a, a whole series of, of meetings and interactions that go on between these tracks that I document in the book on how to manage this, this tap dance, if you will. So it, it is like firmware folks uh, need to almost like be in sync with the software folks so that they can synchronize it. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of times the software teams may need uh, the latest release of the firmware to test against or right. to develop against. And the same thing with the hardware. So it's kind of a, a chain reaction. The, the firmware guys are going to need the hardware and the software guys are going to need the firmware and the hardware to do their testing hmm. uh, and, and development as well. So is there a, uh, a role for Kanban in this mix? Because everything you mentioned sounded like it was on regular time intervals or cadence like Scrum. Yeah, absolutely. I think Kanban is a very good uh, methodology for managing your work in progress, uh, you know, and uh, uh, having those cumulative flow diagrams where you can sort of uh, visualize uh, your, your work in progress at each stage of development and trying to figure out where those bottlenecks are. Um, I think that's a, it's a, it's a very good approach. Although with, um, uh, with, uh, embedded systems development, you're going to have, uh, some pretty complex uh, cumulative flow diagrams and Kanban boards, but, uh, that is such as it is, you know, there's, there's ways to manage that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, from coordination point of view, I'm assuming you are also thinking something similar to like a program board kind of thing where you see every team doing what 
um, across uh, different um, sprints and religious type of thing? Yeah, actually, that's very true. You know, so a Kanban board is one part of it, but in, in this type of context, it's not the only thing you have to have. You've got oh. to have that project view and that program view across all teams. Hmm. That's very important. So can you give us some example of where you had uh, these type of things come together, where it actually worked better for everyone? Yeah, so I would say like, uh, for example, with um, uh, Toshiba uh, and, and Nokia and Intel have done some variations on this approach, mm. uh, especially in the smart metering space. Uh, and so that has uh, allowed them in the smart metering uh, uh, case study, I would say, allowed them to become number one in their market. It helped them get more meters on the ground than any of their competitors. And that's an important uh, perspective on Agile. You know, when people talk about Agile transformation, people are always sure why they're doing it. Are we doing it to be more efficient? Are we doing it to uh, make our teams happier? Are we doing it to uh, create more synergies with other teams? Or, But in reality, the core reason for Agile or the original reason for it, which is why, you know, based on lean techniques and all that stuff, is to become number one in your market or to be market competitive, to try and get innovative solutions out to market as quickly as possible with the highest possible quality and customer satisfaction. That's really what it's all about. Um, yeah, it's finally coming down to what the customer sees and how frequently you can get to them as quickly as we can. They don't really care behind the scene what goes on. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like we we see that in multiple places, not just only uh, at the embedded systems level, but even at uh, hardware uh, type of where we had seen this that the, the customers who really wanted a good and quality product in the, the regular time frame, and the, the first one gets to the market wins. Right. Ah. And when the and when the embedded systems, that's that's again that's. It's hard to do, not just because of the context of, of, of the complexity of the product and the teams, but also most embedded systems have higher quality constraints. They have safety constraints. You know, a lot of embedded systems may be, you know, a, a control unit in a self-driving car or an avionic system in a jet fighter. So these things can't fail. You know, it's not like an e-commerce website where, right. okay, <laughs> if, if it's down, it's not a big deal. You don't want these embedded systems to go down uh, because they're very, very. They have to be very, very fault tolerant and have to uh, uh, have much higher quality expectations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, the failure is a, a bigger impact than uh, e-commerce. Absolutely. <laughs> people people can die, and that's uh, that's true. And we saw that with like um, you know uh, the uh, the Boeing, you know the seven thirty seven Max. You know yeah. that's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we're seeing more and more of that. You know, 15, 20 years ago, if you had a technology failure, it was an inconvenience or a company may lose some money. But today, uh, people could die, as we saw with the Boeing situation. Or, you know, it can have uh, super negative impacts on our financial systems and, and our economy because of uh, the situations we've seen at Equifax and Capital One. That's true. You know, so as software in general and technology in general becomes more embedded in our lives, it's going to have a greater and greater impact. And I think we're going to see, uh, you know, a greater outcry, if you will, for higher quality uh, than I think we used to in the past. That, that's interesting because uh, the qual- I think the, the idea behind uh, Agile or any, any of these 
thing was that the, we deliver the quality product consistently. And now just the bar is getting raised higher and higher with the IoT and those kind of things where even little bit of things constantly go into your day-to-day life. Right. I mean, I, I'm just thinking now that everybody's working from home. Uh, it's, it's like if the internet goes down, your life stops. That's true. I mean, it just, just you know, that, that last mile of uh, reliability has to be 100% there. Right. So I would like to uh, change the, the subject slightly and talk about um, planning in this kind of environment, because at least in my experience, you can almost have, you know, let's say there are three aspects or three components to the total solution here. It can be, I mean, each team in some sense could be using any methodology. It could be agile, it could be waterfall, but the the key is really to align on certain milestones, I would say, and to make sure those milestones are met and to have good communication and so on. And the the part that I found to be important, at least in my experience, is to make sure that these milestones are as close together as possible. I mean, not stretched out by months, but being uh, on the shorter time period and aligned in such a way that you can do end-to-end testing of at least one feature as you go along. So you don't want the different components to come together late in the cycle for the first time. You want to really show a very thin thread of functionality that's end-to-end involving all three components, and then you keep building on that. At least that's my experience. I'm wondering if that's what you've also found and that makes sense. Yeah, I would say that most of our case studies, uh, when I talk about this hybrid form of agility, what they did is you may have these three different uh, development tracks, hardware, firmware, and software that adopt Agile differently, but they used uh, stage gating uh, as a way to keep all three of them in check. And you could say, well, those are stage gates or milestones, whatever you may want to call them. But that's essentially what they're doing is they're, these, uh, the stage gating was used uh, as sort of a check and balance against the Agile process to help keep all these different tracks in sync. So if we get this that goes from end to end through all the three systems that, oh, can we talk to each other? Are we able to get to the you know basic components running and then start adding more things to it? Is that something that you see in the embedded systems also? I would say uh, to some extent, yes. I mean, uh, generally it starts with, uh, you know, with any kind of a cross team, cross track development. And we'll start with like a, like a happy path, but uh, at the same time, you're doing your you're doing your black box, white box testing. You're coming up with all the fail safe scenarios, all the things that could go wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's all about uh, uh, a big part of it is collaborating very closely with the customer as well, because uh, uh, some of our most successful case studies actually uh, leverage the customer as not just a, a client, but also a partner in the development process. Uh, you know, that, that is something so true in every state that we are seeing is that that uh, frequent uh, feedback loop and getting the customer, the end user input at the earliest stage has saved so much um, effort. Quality has improved everything from the product lifecycle point of view. Uh, so I'm seeing, I'm, I'm hearing that even in embedded systems that is getting more prevalent is that is that what you're seeing oh yeah absolutely uh and i think with a complex product you've got to have your 
uh, leverage your, your clients as, uh, as partners uh, in the development, especially in the testing process, uh, and also in defining the product requirements uh, and uh, helping to, uh, you know, iteratively test the product. Uh, um, you know, one of the things I talk about in, in Metagility is that, uh, you know, many companies who are dealing with new technology and innovation, trying to get off the ground, uh, instead of developing this, this hard, uh, inflexible roadmap over the next 18 months to two years, it's, it's more important to come up with a vision for your company or your organization or your product and, and to evaluate new opportunities uh, or, or new customers against that vision. And so, in other words, some of our most successful case studies, they had to make strategic decisions about which customers they were going to take on and which customers they were not going to take on because they wanted customers that, we're going to work with them as a partner and help get this new innovative product out the door. Mm-hmm. If they had, a, if they had customers who were trying to be very difficult with them and say, well, or very strict, I should say, and say, okay, this product has to be perfect uh, right out the door. And we want this, this, and this, and this, uh, many of the, our, our best case studies just basically let those clients go uh, and focused only on those clients that were willing to work with them and help them accomplish their vision for their company and their product. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's the kind of hard decisions you have to make, but uh, it's proven to be mo- very successful. That's why some of our case studies managed to become number one in their market. So I think that, that's an interesting aspect of which customers to work with. And what, basically that means you're building a team of uh, the, the cross-sectional team is right from the developers, marketing all the way to the customer extended agile concept yeah yeah your clients are going to be your biggest uh, proponents they're going to if they're happy they're going to brag about you they're going to be uh, they're going to essentially be like another marketing department uh and uh, they're going to be happy because you've integrated them into your team they're helping to define the product all the way from the beginning and to the end where they're helping you actually test it and roll it out yeah, I was going to say what I've seen is that this mode, though, of having uh, hardware, firmware, and software being developed at the same time, there are particular challenges when you're bringing a new product to market. But then once the hardware and the firmware is out, you kind of move into a, almost like a pure software development cycle of improving, meaning the, the firmware may not need to be updated for a very long time, and yet the client applications that link to that system can be updated every two weeks. Maybe it's a mobile app. It's changing all the time. So I just wanted to sort of bring out at least that difference that I've seen where there's, there's a big difference about what you do when you first bring out a product and then how the product evolves once the first version is out in the market. Yeah, certainly I'd say that's true. And, and, uh, you know, one of the strategies embedded systems organizations use is they, they leverage their software team as sort of an early strike force. So if there's ever a problem out in the field with, that they find in, within a device or a product, it's much quicker and easier and more cost effective to solve that problem with a software solution than it is with a firmware or a hardware solution. And uh, so they try to design the product in such a way as to try and say, well, we can, maybe we can fix this with a, a quick software update. Um, and that's what you want to do. And that's why, you know, of course, Boeing is maybe not the best example, but they did try and solve their problem with software updates uh, initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's, that is the best approach. 
because uh, obviously if you're trying to fix it with a hardware solution or a firmware solution, which in some cases you may be able to, uh, you don't want to try and do that because it's going to be harder to roll out. It's going to take longer. There's going to be a longer testing cycle. The software teams serve as an early strike force, uh, and the most successful embedded systems organizations use them that way. Interesting. Yeah, makes sense. So, so from your experience, especially in this uh, embedded systems, where have you seen the agile transformations fail, and what was the root cause around that? Was it the way it was uh, launched? What would you characterize as the agile failing? Well, with an embedded system situation, the most common reasons they fail is uh, uh, they try to uh, adopt Agile the same way across all these different teams and products. And that mm. simply isn't possible. You know, hardware teams are not going to be able to adopt Agile in the same way that your software teams do. Mm. And so oftentimes uh, the company doesn't understand Agile enough to be able to tell the difference but and of course you may oftentimes as they often do they'll bring in an agile consultant uh and very few agile consultants know a whole lot about embedded systems development and engineering so most of them have worked in a software context uh and so uh they're not really schooled in how to deal with this type of situation uh and so that's probably one of the biggest reasons uh, agile transformations fail with embedded systems development now and generally speaking Agile transformations can fail for a variety of reasons, most commonly uh, lack of executive support mm. uh, or lack of executive engagement is one of the biggest reasons or, you know, a lot of organizational resistance uh, or cultural issues, which are often based on uh, fear. You know, if people don't understand something very well, they're going to fear it. Uh, right. They're going to resist it. So a lot of times uh, when organizations undergo an agile transformation, they they run people through this mill of scrum master training and say, okay, all right, now you're all agile. Let's get started. <laughs> and uh, that's just not really good enough. Uh, your, your entire, all your employees and your teams need to really understand why we're, why agile is important and what it can do for the organization and what it can do for them as individuals and performers, because it can actually make you a better performer and a better uh, technology professional. And uh, there's just not enough training uh, going on with these agile transformations to help uh, make people feel comfortable and get past this organizational resistance. All you learn in those two days is agile principles, but actual agile execution, you know, that's why the entry uh, barrier is very low to get, uh, get into agile, but success barriers is very high because uh, understanding the principles and implementing and actually using them to, the, to its core uh, that takes basically a mindset change, and that takes time. That doesn't happen just just uh, by two days of training, right? And, and uh, when, as you were mentioning, from the commitment from the executive level or leadership, uh, so that the couple of failures uh, they are ready to learn from it and then uh, go to the next level. People are quite scared, or they are not sure whether why if, if we fail. Then what? And uh, am I going to be the scapegoat? <laughs> right. So, unless that uh, safe environment is created by the leadership, uh, people will resist the, these kind of changes. Yes, absolutely. Steve, you had a question. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I mean, an example of that that we could look into is uh, requirements. So typically when you go to product owner training, you come away understanding epics and user stories. 
and that's fine if um, you know in certain environments you can be getting feedback from your customers very quickly and then updating or writing new stories as you go along, even though you may have i mean you should have a roadmap and an overall plan, but you're able to be a lot more responsive but I'm thinking here about when you have for example the the firmware and that the fact that that is a much longer time frame to get the first version out probably the the requirements have to be written very differently and you you have to have a better understanding of where the software may go in future in order to support all possible future features so I just wondered David if you have any thoughts around that yeah, I would say that, um, uh, you know, requirements management is uh, uh, one of the biggest reasons that agile transformations don't go too well. You know, many times uh, when you undergo an agile transformation, all, all the focus is on the teams, the development teams and the scrum master and the, having your stand-ups every day and doing all the rituals and all that. But and in all the case studies I've conducted, I found that uh, one of the biggest reasons for for maybe not a total failure of agile transformation, but lackluster results with agile transformations is uh, poor requirements management and not changing the way requirements are managed. You know, a lot of times, typically in most organizations, when you're having a transformation effort, you know, jobs and roles change. And mm. for example, in a waterfall environment, you're typically going to have a business analyst who's in charge of writing requirements. And that person will often have their role changed to a product owner under when they undergo an agile transformation. The problem is they don't change the way they develop requirements. They still have that waterfall mindset. And right. so when you're, when you're writing requirements in a waterfall situation, what are you trying to do? You need to go to the BRD and PRD and those kind of things right up front. Yeah. The, the, the biggest, the, 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 the phrase I hear the most from, from BAs in that situation is, Oh, I'm afraid I'm going to miss something. I'm afraid I'm going to leave something out. Well, in an agile environment, you're not really so afraid of that because you have another iteration to catch it, right? Yeah. But what's happening is these BAs are so used to working in a waterfall mode, they're used to brainstorming and trying to predict what requirements are really needed by the customer. And so they think of more and more requirements. Well, I think the customer needs this and I think they need that. And they start adding more and more and more user stories without really working with the customer to sort of weed those out and develop them in a collaborative type fashion. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think they always forget the customer before they, they, they put the, their interpretation of customer. Yeah. And so what happens is your, your backlog grows and grows and grows. You have all these requirements that are basically brainstorms from the business analyst and uh, it becomes impossible to prioritize. And then you yep. end up uh, developing features that are underutilized and it costs the company a lot of money and you start packing the releases full, fuller and fuller of stuff that you can barely deliver on time. Uh, and uh, that's where the process starts, starts to kind of break down because you have these business analysts who are now called product owners, but they're not really changing the way they develop and manage their requirements. They're still in that waterfall mindset that they're afraid they're going to miss something and they've got to constantly be predictive of what, what they think the, uh, the client's going to need because they're focused on this deadline uh, and the whole idea of Agile is that it's iterative development, that you can always constantly change and update and add as you go along. So uh, I think then, then really the question comes out as, I mean, that is exactly where the transformation has to happen, but um, maybe uh, there is some different role or their managers or their, like a CPOs or somebody 
has to give that kind of a guidance or maybe an agile coach may have to step in there to give them the guidance as to it's okay you don't have to boil the ocean right and what's your view on where where that that guidance could come from uh it, it probably it probably has to come from training i think uh if you have someone inside the organization that has that knowledge great but uh Oftentimes, it requires somebody on the outside to help uh, retrain this person to uh, use a top-down approach to decomposing requirements hmm. uh, as opposed to a bottom-up approach. Uh, okay. And that's, it, it's a mindset change that uh, uh, usually requires uh, uh, some coursework and some training to do. Hmm. That's interesting approach. I, well, I mean, that, uh, that's what we are seeing as to if you, if you look at how most of the requirements are uh, uh, even the structure that we build is going from the product definition to the minimum viable product to the minimum marketable feature and then to the story. So it's like, it, it's like a peeling onion and then finding the first successful path through that. But uh, yeah, it, as, as you said, it, it is critical to, Get some training, get some hand-holding, get some learning. And uh, first few cycles may not be successful, but uh, whatever you learn from there, that's what is going to make a difference. Right. So going back to requirements, I just want to mention something I've also seen, which is because typically the development of hardware takes even longer than anything else. So there's firmware that's running in some hardware, but the hardware itself takes a long time. Uh, one of the things I've seen is that the hardware is sometimes not designed based on what the user experience is going to be. It's more based on what technology is available. There's a new chipset, there's whatever. So it's very hardware-based and limited usually not by the user experience that we want to offer to customers but more by like literally down to the penny there has to be a cost saving here and there and and so on and then in some rare instances that hardware can't even fully support the features that get added iteratively later on so that's um, maybe very specific to certain industries but i just wondered how the hardware design fits into this, not just the, the firmware and other software. Yeah, I would say that's a, that's a problem I've seen quite often as well. Uh, you know, the, uh, the hardware is often driven by manufacturing constraints, uh, availability of components uh, like chipsets and things like that, chipsets that are no longer supported. You have to upgrade to the latest chipset. Um, or maybe the company has purchased uh, a million uh, pieces of a certain chipset that they want to use up, and uh, now this chipset won't uh, support some of the uh, features that the software teams want to create. So yeah, there are. I've seen that problem quite a bit. It occurs quite often in this situation. Um, how do you manage that? Well, it's uh, uh, in Metagility. I talk about. Uh, I go into a long discussion about. Uh, you know, when we talk about Agile, we hear a lot about interactions, uh, and. Uh, uh, in Metagility, I go into detail as to classi into classifying the different types of interactions uh, and at what point, when, where, and how all these different teams, these different development tracks who are essentially developing different products, 
how they collaborate together, how they communicate together, and how they plan uh, the systems release together in such a way as to make sure that these things don't happen as often. There's always going to be tension there. There's always going to be, there's so many moving parts. This, these sorts of situations are probably always going to come up and, and happen, but uh, by using some of the techniques I talk about in the book, um, it can help alleviate uh, how often these things occur so that, you know, okay, uh, you know, we have a, uh, we have a chipset that's going to support this set of features for this amount of time. And, and uh, we've got to make sure that when we plan our next release, that we're going to use the newest chipset next year or something like that. So it's all about communication and collaboration internally, just like we talked about externally with the client. But um, having this, uh, these planning sessions uh, across teams um, is, is really important. So we also see there is some some trends about you know the hardware that is there that was not designed to certain uh, support certain things that can actually do things that uh, initially when it was deployed is asked to do something different. So what how does that manifest itself and uh, how is that been successfully done or have you seen that kind of a trend or uh, use cases where the old hardware is doing new things? Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there, there's always different ways to, uh, I've seen some of the things come up and you want to try and develop a mitigation strategy or, mm. um, you know, maybe it's not a software solution. Maybe the firmware team can, can create a solution uh, that can help, help this chipset support what the software wants to do. Um, you know, a lot of times the firmware, Firmware, the biggest constraint the firmware developers have, especially on small IoT type devices, uh, is uh, memory space. Uh, and so they have to design their code in such a way as to be very, very efficient. And uh, a lot of times, uh, if there's a new feature needed or something else we need to do from a software perspective, uh, then the firmware teams can try and go back to the drawing board and, and squeeze a few, squeeze a little blood out of the uh, Turn them, so to speak. Yeah, and and they've been successful at doing that in, in many of the many of the examples I've seen. Uh, and uh, you, at first, you might think, "Well, there's no way we're going to get any more uh, CPU utilization or, or space or memory out of this chipset." But you know, if you uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, as as they say. And uh, uh, a lot of times, uh, the firmware teams are able to make that kind of thing happen. So they're they're the glue that. The, the point here is that the, the firmware teams often serve as the, the glue and in the interface between the hardware teams and the software teams in an embedded system situation. And so they're, they're often the go-to people for solving these kinds of problems. Interesting. And so, so they are the liaison between the two <laughs> entities, I guess. That's right. Ah, I'm, I'm quite excited about the kinds of things you are mentioning in your book. So I'll, I'll definitely go into details of... Uh, your books and I think um, oh, many of our listeners would also like to know. So if you want to tell us how they can find it and uh, you know, if they need to uh, get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you? Sure. Well, uh, you can type in Metagility uh, on Google and you'll see all sorts of things that light up. Uh, the book Metagility is available everywhere. Books are sold. It's on Amazon uh, and uh, it's uh uh, it's on Barnes and Noble. I think it's uh, uh, on Red Shelf and uh, just about everywhere. Okay. Uh, 
And uh, uh, you can, uh, if they want to reach out to me, they can go to, uh, first you can take a look at agileworks.com, A-G-I-L-E-W-O-R-X.com. Uh, and take a look at uh, some of our workshops that we have coming up. And also, and of course, those workshops are scheduled for mostly in the fall, <laughs> fortunately. <laughs> uh, so we had one scheduled for early May. We pushed that one back uh, to uh, the latter part of May in Denver. But the rest of them are scheduled, I think, starting in, uh, in September. Um, but um, you can take a look at those. And uh, also reach out to me personally. Uh, I'm, uh, you can email me at david at agileworks.com. Again, that's A-G-I-L-E-W-O-R-X.com. Okay. And I'll be happy to chat or answer any questions. Uh, I love hearing from people. So that's the best way to get in touch with me. Well, this was really great, David. Really appreciate your time. A lot of people are working in this space and having struggles. So we'll definitely put a link to the book and uh, the other resources you mentioned in the show notes. So again, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.